Hey, Jennifer. Hi, Monica. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of Biophilic Solutions. Before we dive in, I think maybe we should talk about this word, biophilia. It's kind of a mouthful, and most people have never heard of it. What do you think, Jennifer? (laughs) Totally. It's not the most beautiful word, but the idea behind it is super beautiful. I mean, basically, biophilia refers to this very human desire to connect with nature, and so much of that connection has been lost in modern times. It's so good for our mental and physical health to connect with nature and feel like we are part of nature, and that simple idea is at the forefront of new thinking about design, urban planning, mental health, and the conversation around climate change and protecting the earth. So biophilia is a simple idea, but maybe also super broad? Totally. And our conversation today is about biophilic communities and what that looks like and how we can advocate for biophilic land planning in our own communities. Especially thinking about our experiences with COVID and the possibility of future pandemics, we need more communities that are resilient and forward thinking. It's more important than ever. Absolutely. And to your point, today we're talking to Dr. Phil Tabb, a land planner, architect, and scholar who has been at the forefront of the biophilic movement for nearly 20 years. Dr. Tabb is Professor Emeritus of Architecture at Texas A&M and is the author of multiple publications on topics such as solar energy, green architecture, and sustainable urban design. His most recent work is the book Biophilic Urbanism, which we're going to dive into today. He talks about nature-based urban environments that are climate positive, sustainable, and healthy. Dr. Tab is also the lead land planner for the biophilic community of Serenby, which is located just outside of Atlanta, where, spoiler alert, Phil and I both live. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into our interview with Dr. Phil Tab. Welcome, Phil. So do I talk now? <laughs> yeah, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. You're our inaugural episode. All right. Well, to start off, uh, for me, uh, biophilia is a set of relationships uh, between nature, human beings, and the environment. And uh, each of those interact with one another. In other words, the environment has an impact on nature, as does nature have an impact on the environment. And nature has an impact on humans, as do humans have an impact on nature. And finally, Humans have an impact on the environment as the environment has an impact on humans. So there's those these six components that uh, comprise, in a way, the function of biophilia. Okay, I'm going to have to get a chart for that um, and, and figure that whole thing out. But it sounds like it's a basically we are all affecting each other, and we have to be really thoughtful and aware of those interconnections. Yes. Um, Tell me about biophilia a little bit. Like, when did you stumble across it? Has this been something in your work forever, or is this something new to you? Uh, Yes and no. Um, I grew up in southeast Idaho, which is one of the more beautiful places in America. And um, I thought that everywhere was full of nature. You know, we were right next to the Rocky Mountains, Yellowstone National Park, the Tetons, and so on. And so I've always had a close connection to nature. But specifically with biophilia, I think my first uh, interaction with the term was with uh, a guy by the name of Plenty Fisk, who is a sustainable planner and landscape architect from Austin, Texas. And he went to the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s when Louis Kahn and uh, Ian McCarg were teaching there. And Ian McCarg wrote the book Designed with Nature in 1970. I got his book back then. This is, this is the actual book. Wow. Book. So 
I mean, back in 19, early 1970s, designed with nature. <laughs> I mean, right. There it is, right? Um, and uh, he's not really credited too much with biophilia, but I think the, his concept certainly is a component of biophilia. And did he talk about cities and bringing nature into cities, or was he just talking about it in general? He was talking more, I think, in general, but as a concept mm-hmm. that affects, you know, all scales of design. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has a center outside of Austin, Texas, and he primarily started by focusing on sustainability, but then expanded mm-hmm. into all of the elements of uh, water collection and solar and so on, and then moved into biophilia. I'm, I was a department head in uh, 2004, and I hired him at Texas A&M. So that's why I got to know planning quite well. And then, of course, working with Serenby and the early stages of the Biophilic Institute, um, I had groups of students here from Texas A&M that were uh, living as a part of a study away program. And we uh, actually looked at biophilia, among other things, here at Serenby. So that was another sort of one of my introductions to biophilia. And, of course, being on the board uh, of the Biophilic Institute here at Serenby is uh, allowed me to interact with a, a lot of really world-renowned people in the field. What year did you move to Serenby, Phil? Well, I built my house in 15 and 16, and then I moved here in the summer of or the late spring of 2017. Mm-hmm. When you did move to Serenby, did it kind of change your vision of how you saw biophilic design or how you want to intend it to look for yourself? No, um, I had already um, ideas about that. Because, you know, I started planning Serenity in 2001. Yeah. And uh, this was before uh, biophilia really was a very common term. Although Olson's book in 84, I believe, and Tillert's book uh, came out in the 80s. Kaplan and Kaplan came out in 89. Uh, These are all books that were early, early academic writings on biophilia by non-designers, but oriented towards designers. And it wasn't until, I would say... Uh, 2010-ish and on, did it really begin to infiltrate the design world. Interesting. Um, Terrapin Bright Green's um, 14 Patterns had a huge influence, even though it was not a book. It was an online PDF Uh that got circulated quite a bit. And it was one of the first, uh, I guess, examples of, you know, what, you know, design guides of what to do. And really nothing had come out since then. I think it was 2000. 14 when that book came out. That was six years ago. Yeah, it's not very long ago. Yeah. Do you, Phil, Phil, are people, um, are, is it being taught at universities and colleges? Is biophilia being taught like as a, as a true class or sort of industry? I don't really see it as an industry. I see it as a, a focus field. Um, it's not taught, to my knowledge, as a full course, you know, biophilia 101. But it is taught within uh, other courses. I know at Texas A&M, we have a, an environment and behavior class that uh, brings up biophilia as a component of that. Huh. And the sustainability course that I taught at Texas A&M also brought up biophilia okay. as a component of uh, sustainability. Interesting. Do you think it would be taught, though, in the future? Could be. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I got more seriously involved in biophilia is what I was looking for, always looking for umbrellas that are, are bigger than the smaller umbrellas. So mm-hmm. um, always looking for the big one. And, uh, of course, in, in my world, I started off with solar energy, and then it went to renewable energy, and, and then it went to sustainability. And, and then finally, I think, biophilia. And 
The thing I like about biophilia is that it encompasses a lot of other tangential areas, such as placemaking, the spiritual component to the environment, health and wellness, of course, and I think climate neutrality. Mm. So in my book, I point out those, uh, I think, five outcomes, which makes the book a little bit unique to what's been written before, because most of uh, the previous books focus on health and wellness as the major outcome of biophilia. Uh, My book, I really felt that mitigating uh, climate change, creating more sustainable environments, creating placemaking, especially from the social point of view, and uh, health and wellness, of course. And then finally, the numinous, which is our emotional and spiritual relationship to the unknown or the sp- to spirit. So all of those seem to be components that were important. Talk about, um, you know, biophilic cities or biophilic urbanism. Um, you know, you've talked about sort of what biophilia is, but like, what is a biophilic urban space look like? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Good question. I mean, that's a good question. And uh, even though as an architect, I'm very visual, it's not how it looks to me that's important. It's how it functions Okay. on uh, all these different levels, you know, like the five outcomes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, at any scale, you know, at what scale can you begin to deal with climate neutrality? Mm-hmm. Scale, you know, all. And in fact, you can find out that on all those scales, you can deal with all those uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. But they're a little bit different. The, the scale has a way of creating a difference. For example, at the community and urban scale, design elements such as infrastructure become more important than, let's say, the biophilia of a single room in a house. Mm. So as you move up scale, you begin to get into bigger, uh, more systemic ways of dealing with uh, biophilia. Mm-hmm. The third group, resilience. Mm. Think, for me, the, the, the most basic component of resilience is the idea of survival advantage. Mm. When biophilia first came into, uh, at least this is what um, a lot of the early academics on biophilias began to say, is that during the Savannah hypothesis period, which was about 1.8 million years ago, when we became bipedal, that along with that became a certain kind of self-awareness and consciousness that led to this notion of biophilia, the love of nature. Hmm. And in addition to that, we began to evolve from, let's say, the forested areas, which were affected by climate change and uh, what they call the the arid hypothesis, into the savannas. And so what makes us resilient is our ability to find survival advantages in certain settings. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to today. Sure. And look at COVID, for example. Where is it safe to be uh, to exist in a, in a COVID-laden uh, environment? And that's part of our survival advantage is finding those places. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think Serenby is a community that uh, <laughs> echoes that. Sure, and I, I personally, of course, love that you say that. <laughs> uh, but but uh, my first thought is like, what is safe is the outside. Right. Mm -hmm. We're hearing so much like if you're outside, it's safer. They still require masks, still six feet. But like, you know, have your gathering outside or if you're going to get together with people, get together outside. You know, I I think so many places, um, you know, Jennifer's in New York and obviously I'm down here in sort of the country. We you Phil and I are in the country and um, outside of Atlanta, you know, it's easier 
to get outside in different places. Um, but talk about, you know, cities, that's where the majority of people live and or individuals in the suburbs that just don't have access to a trailhead or a park. What are the opportunities to change that? Like who's doing the work or how do we change that placemaking our environment? Uh, you know, it's a really difficult question because, um, you know, the, the past political environments have been such that you can't do anything, let alone change for biophilia. So, I mean, we have a huge inventory of existing buildings and cities and streets and so on and the technologies that support those. Uh And to begin to change all of them worldwide is unbelievable. We're talking about centuries of work. Right. Of course, uh, most of us live in the present. So what is it I can do today? Yeah. And um, if you're an individual, there are a lot of things that you can do in the home. Uh-huh. And you can also begin to support your community making some changes. And to some degree, through political processes generally, you can affect uh, what can happen in cities. But uh, one thing that seems to be happening is the migration. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there is a migration because of COVID out of cities. Mm-hmm. And uh, that leads me to think that uh, and because of the way the work situation has worked for many people, my son and daughter-in-law have been working at home for nine months mm-hmm. and will, will do so for another nine months. Mm-hmm. So it's not new, but not all jobs allow that. Mm-hmm. But that's beginning to change the work landscape. Mm-hmm. And um, also because that work landscape is beginning to change, it's beginning to change the necessity for really highly dense cities. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a professor of mine at Washington State University used to ask his uh, students, this was a structural uh, professor, uh, what was the single most important technology that allowed for the evolution of the high-rise building? Oh, interesting. What was that? Well, a lot of people said, well, was it uh, heating and air conditioning systems? Was mm-hmm. it the elevator? Uh-huh. Was it uh, curtain wall um, skins that go on to high-rise buildings. Sure. Anyway, his his hit was the single most important technology was the telephone. What? What? You're kidding me. <laughs> because it allowed people to be able to work way up in the air and connect to everybody. Wow. Else. No. So uh, I think in this day and age, <laughs> especially with the Internet and Zoom and so on, you can see how important that is. And of course, you know, to do Zooming and, and telephoning and texting does not, you do not need to be in a high rise building to do that. Oh, I know that feeling now that I'm like, you know, like you said, you, I live in New York City, but right now I'm recording this up in the Catskills. And when you were saying that the, the plight of people leaving and just everyone taking off from cities, I, everyone appeared, the homes are, they're gone because everyone moved from New York to live here in the Catskills area. And it's, it's a beautiful place to reside. Um, but I understand it's just that. The mentality, everyone's like, I got to get out. I need, I need to breathe. I need more space. I need some solace in the woods. Um, yeah. but I can definitely feel that for sure. Now, the flip side of the argument is, well, what do we do with cities? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, 100 years ago when we had uh, pandemics, um, and even before that, uh, city planning mm-hmm. was highly influenced by, by diseases. And that's where parks and tree-lined streets come in. And, and those are things that can happen, um, even pedestrianization. Mm-hmm. Uh, can happen. And uh, those particular uh, moves have been seen to be very beneficial and to actually reverse the 
uh, migration tendencies back into city centers. Ponte uh, Verde in Spain is a good example. In 2000, actually 1999, they decided to get rid of the car in the historic area of the city. Mm-hmm. And since that time, population has increased. Uh, there's more a percentage of uh, families with children. There's only been one or two automobile deaths within the, within the last 20 years. Wow. Uh, of course, CO2 levels uh, mm. have really gone down and so on. So, I mean, that's something that I'm beginning to see is happening more and more throughout the world, uh, getting rid of the automobile in downtown. Yeah, and you're seeing that in, um, right, San Francisco, London, um, obviously New York with either Times Square or Herald Square. And and I and even in Atlanta, I think the Beltline is an interesting example. Highline in New York would be another example. But, you know, we moved to Atlanta, gosh, 20 years ago, no Beltline, you know, it was just an idea in Ryan Gravel's head. And, you know, nobody, I didn't feel like Atlanta was a very outdoorsy place, but they built something that got people outdoors. It, 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 you know, drove them to this belt line that then, you know, had tons of infrastructure, apartments, restaurants, everything along it and connected all these neighborhoods. And now, you know, Piedmont Park, which is the central park in the middle of the city, mm-hmm. which is connected to the belt line. I mean, it's, you can barely get on the belt. You can barely walk the belt line. It's so busy. And so there is a bit of the, if we build it or, you know, we don't even know what we need. And I think biophilia is a big thing to me, at least is like, we don't, we don't, when I first heard it, I was like, I don't know what that is. But now that I understand it, it's just like, it seems like it's everything. Um, So, so how do you feel like, you know, your book just came out, obviously you've been working in the industry for a while or the, I've started the field, but what, what's your thought about scaling it and, and um, how this book will help or what do people need to do? I mean, obviously we can do things individually, but I'm a big advocate that we need to, you know, push the people who really have the power to make changes. What, what can we do and, and what are you seeing about scalability? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm-to-table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the sixth annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. 
We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Well, scalability is ultimately what we need to have happen. And not only, uh, I mean, Tim Bately's books on uh, Biophilic Cities talks about, uh, I think, five different scales, room, architecture, street, block, community, and region. Ultimately, it's going to have to be the whole planet, right? And that, that's going to be a huge challenge, I think, to get to that scale. You know, if you take the five outcomes, and maybe there are more outcomes than those five, uh, climate neutrality, sustainability, placemaking, health and wellness, and uh, the numinous. By the way, just a reminder to everyone listening, numinous refers to the spiritual aspect of biophilic design. It's one of the positive outcomes. If you take those and begin to scale them, you'll see that they scale slight in slightly different ways. And sometimes there's actual contradictions when you start to scale them. For example, density is a good sustainable strategy. It creates more efficiency. Uh-huh. But density also begins to create difficulties for solar access. Mm. So low density is better for solar access. High density is better for efficiency. Okay. You have these contradictions. And as you move up and down the scale, you're going to find out that you have similar contradictions. Mm -hmm. But you're going to have more similarities. For example, you can have a plant in your room. Mm -hmm. You can plant trees in your garden. You can plant trees along the street. You can create a pocket park in your neighborhood. You can create a large park and tree-lined streets and edible uh, uh, plants in your community. Mm -hmm. And within your region, you can begin to plan around ecological flows. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that we can begin to do as you begin up the scale. Mm-hmm. And it is really important to, to think in a scalar way, I think, because it's more comprehensive. Right. Sure. It's one thing to put a plant in your room, and that's good, right? But you're not going to solve all the problems of the world by putting the plant there. So true. Actually, can you speak to that? Because I know you talked about the home. So what if people are just trying to understand what does biophilia mean to my home and what can I do in my own home to be more biophilic or be better planners for, you know, even for to teach our own children? How do we think about that first? Well, if you look at the uh, biophilic patterns and Stephen Killard had 72 Mm. patterns and then later he and Liz Calabrese reduced that down to 25 Terrapin Bright Green had initially 14 patterns, and they've added awe as the 15th. Love that. Uh, in my book on serene urbanism, I had uh, 20 placemaking patterns. And in this new book on biophilic urbanism, I have 25 patterns. And there's a lot of crossover on these patterns. So, uh, for example, if you were to look at the 25 patterns and go through that list and say, okay, what can I do in my own home relative to those patterns? Then you can begin to answer the question. For example, the third or the second pattern is our relationship to the animal kingdom. So get a bird mm-hmm. <laughs> or a cat, like a dog. Uh, or if you're fortunate enough to live in a place like uh, Serenby, we have 123 different bird species here. So wake up in the morning and go out and listen to the birds. I mean, that is a biophilic function. That's just the second one. And, uh, of course, there's a relationship to nature, uh, to, uh, to the plant kingdom, uh, which planning, uh, having the, the potted plant in your room would do. Um, sensual experiences, you know, opening up all the senses is going to, to create, uh, let's say, greater healing, potential for greater healing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, walking around Serenby and places like Serenby, 
Um, if you walk by the daisy, you can smell the food being prepared. You can hear sounds of bells ringing and so on. So all the senses get activated. So I think uh, that's an important one. Of course, prospect and refuge is another one. And that's an interesting one that exists on, uh, on both the house scale and community scale. The omega shapes in Serenby are ideal prospect and refuge planning shapes because you have the prospect of looking into the omega centers and you have the surveillance of streets. And at the same time, the um, omega shape creates a protected inner area, just as let's say the living room in your house creates a protected area. Mm. So those are two ways in which uh, prospect and, and refuse are expressed at these different scales. Yeah, and I remember learning about that concept from Bill Browning and the, the example, and tell me if this is correct, I always think of like, why does everybody want the corner booth in a restaurant? Exactly. And that, and that corner booth in the restaurant provides both prospect and refuge, right? You, you're protected, you're sort of in the back, you know, your back is protected and then you can see out um, and that is this really deep seated biological. And it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's an inherited, uh, what uh, Kellett would say is an inherited genetic quality of our evolutionary uh, biology. So, uh, yes, that is true. So, that's an important one. And um, I mean, if you go down the list, uh, take a look at Kellett's 72 items. Um, uh, the reason is so many, he has about five or six items dealing with natural light or with light. And what Bill Browning and I have done is kind of uh, collapse those five or six elements all into one, which I call all aspects of light. Hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, according to Killert's listing, things like uh, light and shadow. And of course, we get that here in Sarah when you walk out in the woods, especially this time of year when you get the shadows uh, of the trees, especially early in the morning and later at night, you get these beautiful long shadows uh, crossing the paths. Uh, you get uh, diffuse light like we've had uh, when it's uh, not so sunny here. You get direct light coming in. Um, you have sort of flickering light. If you're out in the woods and you see the leaves beginning to move, and, and then that affects and gives it a more dynamic quality of light. And you have, uh, let's say, night light. And here at Serenby, of course, we protect the night skylight. But Mm. at the same time, the night light is um, mandated to be very low and and very subtle and down-pointed. Exactly, exactly. We don't really have, like, master huge street lights that we encourage everybody to have. Um, I think it's actually required, you know, a light on your house. Um, and that front, um, you know, front door light um, is a soul, supposed to be solar activated. And that's supposed to sort of illuminate the street in a very subtle way, which I think is an interesting design element versus these sort of, like, encroaching poles that sort of yes you know, turn it to day yeah like new york yeah in my house i have and i can't say that this is something that everybody can do or design but i have what's called a, a light gradient that mm-hmm. goes from my living room which is really bright light to my office which is medium to my bedroom which is darker mm-hmm. wow. and you did that you did that through architecture yes and it's the idea is having variable light qualities within your house instead of having the same light quality everywhere mm-hmm. and it begins wow. to have you focus your eyes in different ways i mean these are just really subtle uh, subtle things that uh, for me is more than just putting a plant in the corner of your room 
Sure. <laughs> Let's see, color, which is another one of my patterns, which I don't think Killert or even Terrapin have used, which I call living color. And I got living color really from Feng Shui. And it's the idea of being able to experience real alive color, uh-huh. artificial color. And artificial color in itself is not bad. But experiencing the red of a real red rose is different than experiencing the red on, on a wall. Um, uh, so uh, it has a much different kind of vibrance to it. Uh-huh. To it. So that's what we, why we call it a uh, living color. So uh, it, I've never heard of that. That's so interesting. So um, the more living color you can have in your room, for example, then again, you're exposing yourself to another quality of biophilic design. Hmm. That's interesting. You think about people buying fresh flowers or, you know, why do, yes. why is that such a wonderful experience, um, you know, beyond the, you know, a permanent plant, but that's interesting to think it's not just um, whatever that it cleans the air or it's a natural product in the house, but the living color, I've never really thought about that. And, you know, we, we love a, a brand of paint called Pharaoh and Ball, which, oh, yeah. you know, is fabulous. And it's so beautiful on the wall. Um, and I, my understanding is it's like, it has so many more pigments in it. Um, and it sort of changes with the light a little bit. Um, and I think more and more companies have done that over the years, but I had never thought about, you know, maybe why I'm attracted to, um, or why all of us are attracted to natural living things. Mm-hmm. That's another reason. Yes. Now, another one of the patterns is our connection to the celestial world. And again, this is a design thing. Uh, in my house, it was important that I had um, visual access to the night sky. And, you know, when it's about uh, a quarter moon to a half a moon, I can look right out my living room windows and I can see it up there at about nine o'clock. Oh, wow. That's and, fantastic. Okay. Now, what good is that? Well, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I love looking for the moon in, in New York City, which is hard to do sometimes. Yeah. I think it, what good, it's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> it is, but it expands your. Um, your world sure it expands it to something larger than your house, your community, to you know the, the world around us, and uh, knowing our place in this larger world, I think is really is really healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that touches on awe. Can yeah. you talk about awe a little bit? Because I think <laughs> that sits in. Does that, does that sit in the numinous? Um, yeah. Okay, talk a little bit about that because. That's, I think, a concept that um, we're going to hear more and more about in the coming you know, months and years. I think so. In fact, I have a, a new book proposal out called uh, Thin Places, The Hidden Function of Architecture and Urban Design. Oh. So um, it really focuses in on the experience of awe, which using the concept of thin places is the threshold for that experience. Give us an example. Like, what would be a thin place? Well, it can exist on any scale. Um, Let's say Piazza San Marco. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, If you've ever been there or the first time you went in there, you were probably kind of blown away, right? Yeah. And uh, that's an experience of awe. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yep. Yeah. Or along a beautiful beach. Uh, I mean, these are all natural uh, or an intimate, let's say, natural setting, like a beautiful little clearing in the woods, or here at Serenby, the waterfalls. Uh, these are all uh, natural thin places. 
Now, in architecture, it can happen as well. There's some a lot of really extraordinary uh, buildings from the MIT Chapel done by uh, Louis Icahn to a place that I've discovered. It's a, little, it's a little glass chapel in Mexico. It's really beautiful. And you can also find them in every day. That's another part of this book proposal is the it's kind of the numinous or thin places in every day. Mm, that. Window seats. Oh. You know, when the light pours in and you're reading a book or you're just hanging out in this teeny little place and it becomes a thin place. And uh, a thin place is defined as a place, since it's a space, it's a place where there's a veil, a very thin veil between the secular and the sacred. When it's a thin place, it gets thinner, thinner and thinner to the point where in many ways it goes away. And you have this numinous experience with God or nature or whatever it is that is unexplainable. So I, I agree with you. I think this realm, the realm of awe, is really going to be of interest. And it, too, has many interesting outcomes, of which health and wellness is one of them. Absolutely. And I think it has a, a collateral kind of positive outcome towards sustainability, placemaking, and some of these other outcomes. Because um, if you're in a thin place, you're going to want to sustain this kind of place. So whenever you come to it, you have that same experience. The Western Wall in Jerusalem is a thin place. Okay. Um, uh, the stone in Mecca is a thin place. Um, there are so many examples of thin places. But the ones that I think are really and the book is kind of oriented this way, is to show what a thin place is, but also to bring it down to your everyday experience, mm-hmm. much like what biophilia is mm-hmm. trying to do as well. And, and that kind of leads us to case studies um, in your book. Yeah. Well, in the book, there are um, six what I call precedents and one case study. Uh, the, case okay. study the case study is Serenby, and it goes into a lot of detail. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, after I talk about the precedents. Mm-hmm. And the precedents evolve in the book um, from smaller scale to a larger scale. Okay. So in a way, the precedents are scaling. Mm-hmm. So the first precedent is uh, a place that I've visited many times called Castilla de Gaganza mm-hmm. in uh, Tuscany. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, 13th century uh, medieval town that was originally um, designed as one horseback ride away from Siena. Wow. Overlooks the Val di Chiana, oh. which is the main valley that connects uh, Tuscany back to Rome. Yes. And it was an outpost so that the Sienese could tell if either, the, um, either Arezzo or Rome was marching on them. Mm-hmm. So they were one horseback ride away. But <laughs> it was a, a, sustain, a little sustainable community, tiny, with about uh, originally about 30 homes in it. It has a, a little parish church and a square and a tower, and it's got a battered wall around it. And um, it's really a beautiful little place now that was uh, sort of run down um, about, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then it was purchased uh by a count from uh, Florence, and then he has uh, repurposed it into kind of a conference center. And there are 23 of these beautiful little cottages that you can uh, stay in. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's got this uh, parish church and a well, and it's got really beautifully updated conference facilities. And so they're getting a lot of sort of corporate 
uh, management people coming out and having these uh, uh, conferences there. And every year that I was uh, in Castellon Fiorentino, I would take my class there and we would spend the day there and have lunch there. So that's one of the uh, uh, precedents. And of course, uh, it has what, what's strong there is the fact that it's similar to to Serenby in that it's in the middle of, of woods. Mm-hmm. And two, it has this wonderful prospect in, in that case of the Val de Chiana. And it has gardens and trees within it, and it's bounded really beautifully. And bounding is another one of the patterns. And it has a true center, which is this plaza and a well in the center. Hmm. So, and it has natural materiality, uh, beautiful stonework and wood in it. And like I said, it, had, it has gardens. And there's a lot of sort of wild animals that are around of the area so people staying there can interact with them mm-hmm. so anyway that's the, that's the first one the next one is a little odd which i think is but it's really interesting is the google headquarters in mountain view so different yes so different and uh what i really liked about google was uh, among other high-tech businesses it is really transforming the business landscape mm-hmm. the employee landscape and uh, both my son and daughter-in-law work for Google, so I've had the opportunity to visit um, uh, Mountain View, uh, their facility in Boulder, and their facility in Zurich. Mm. It always blows me away with the kind of personal freedom and the uh, encouragement of uh, creativity and also the encouragement of interaction that, that, and health and wellness that goes on in these businesses. It's just uh, quite extraordinary. So also uh, uh, the firm Big is designing a new addition. It's actually a new facility in the Mountain View. And it's a big, huge dome like space that's going to have plants and this, again, this very creative uh, work landscape inside. Um, it also has a way where the existing community of Mountain View can actually begin to interact with the building in a greater way. Interesting. Most of the times, you know, like if you think of the, I shouldn't be saying this, but if you think of the Apple building, which is this huge donut building, it's like, don't come into me, you know, Uh it's really repelling in a way where I think the Google is really trying to uh, create a more, what we call a front door uh, Mm -hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Well, many of the tech companies, um, you know, having friends in San Francisco, the ones that are in downtown San Francisco, and we won't name them, you can imagine, you know, they they came in and they said they got all of these um, concessions through the city because they were going to bring all of these people, but they ended up creating their own internal ecosystem with their own dry cleaners and food, and actually the workers didn't actually leave the building and actually support the local community. And it became this very insular, um, you know, it, 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 you know, it sort of purported to be something that was going to transform a neighborhood, but Mm -hmm. it ended up being very insular. So I love to see that Google is moving to create campuses that are more, um, um, inclusive rather than exclusive um, because 
that's, that's a huge thing that I think we talk about a lot in placemaking is like, there's no gates, you know, like so many of these neighborhoods are gated and you're, you're kind of like created this little jail um, that you're trapped in and only you can come in and there's just no energy because a real town, a real space, um, you know, has people flowing in and out and, and that openness is, Mm -hmm. is really beautiful and what we should all be looking towards. um, And I think is, you know, potentially what one thing that makes a biophilic city or a resilient city is that, um, would, would permeability be the right word? I don't know quite what the right word is, but. Porous, um, porousness. Porousness. Porous. Okay. That makes sense. It's the way you really feel in a space. It's that kind of ebb and flow of a space that it gives to you that you recognize it, I think, right away, how good you feel somewhere. And it's almost palpable, I think. Well, one of the things that was a hidden agenda for me was, the idea of matching Serenby with Google. <laughs> Talk about that. <laughs> the idea of marrying um, a Google kind of place and um, and Serenby is to attack one of the biggest polluters that we have, which is the commute to work, mm-hmm. residential communities to work. And you talk about resilience and it is the resilience to be able to transform the kinds of cities that we've created in the 19th and 20th centuries mm-hmm. versus the ones that are going to evolve in, in uh, this 21st century. Mm-hmm. And, and let me, let me follow up on that. What changes are we most likely to see in cities to support that outcome in the next I'll yeah. call it 20 to 50 years? I think it's um, what is now being called landform and landscape urbanism. Mm. So it's more about horizontal territoriality mm. than it is vertical. Now, of course, if you live in Manila or Tokyo or Shanghai or New York City, places like this, they're very vertical cities. And, um, uh, I just don't see, remember, the, why do we have high rises? You know, what's the major technology that's allowing for high rises? It's basically communication. Mm-hmm. And uh, with today's communication, we don't need that same kind of concentration. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have negative environmental effects to be horizontal because one of the advantages of vertical cities is they take up less land. So, um, in a way, I still think from a biophilic point of view, going more horizontal. Mm-hmm. is going to be the trend. Personally, and this is my own personal view, um, if I never have to use an elevator again the rest of my life, I'll be happy. <laughs> yes, and then I will, I will second the, um, the, those awful parking lots where you're driving in circles and circles and circles and oh, circles yeah. to get to your space, and then you have to get into an elevator. Ugh. Yeah. Well, the next precedent to kind of push on <laughs> is after Google, is a place called, um, I got to get the right pronunciation. It's uh, Helsing Havby. It's a, uh, a, a Danish name, and it's a small community about uh, an hour north of Copenhagen. Mm. And it's an existing town, but this community is right on the edge of town. And it's within walking distance of right downtown where there's lots of restaurants and so on. And it's maybe about the same scale of Serenby. Uh-huh. But it has about 2,500, uh, I think, population. And it's a series of 25 clusters. They're like donut shapes 
of single family and attached housing huh. that are surrounded by farms. Wow. So it's an agri-hood agri uh -huh. there, and they have some mixed use, and they have a thing that's called the food hub, okay, which is like um, a, a center within all these little centers okay. where uh, the community can meet and uh, they can have community dinners and so on like that. But each uh, each residence has their own way of doing this. It's somewhat like co-housing, mm. but not quite so strict as co-housing, mm -hmm. which also started in Denmark. Um, anyway, that's the second or third. Uh, the fourth one is, um, I believe, Kronsberg, which is uh, it's called the Kronsberg District. It's in um, Hanover, Germany. Okay. And I, I had the opportunity to go there in the year 2000 when it opened. And it was... Uh, designed it to be one of the most uh, sustainable communities. It also has agriculture. It's a little bit denser uh, than some of these other uh, communities I've been talking about. And one of the things I featured in my book that it has is what are called super blocks. Large blocks that are porous, meaning that you can go into them. And inside is, you know, a couple of acre site, two to three or four acre sites that are natural. Wow. And each block has a different kind of nature inside. Oh, wow. Some have uh, daycare, some have elementary schools, some have parks, some have uh, water retention, some have streams going through them. And they're all interconnected in a pedestrian um, kind of network. And so that was one of the main features that I th thought was biophilic. It also had, as you can imagine, a square donut having great prospect and, and refuge, right? Sure. And access to nature. It also has a density gradient going from a tram on one end, a tram line on one end, to the farms on the other end. And so the density is about five stories on the tram end going down to two stories on, on the farm end. So uh, I thought it was, and then the streets, really interesting. They are tree-lined streets. But depending on uh, what side of the uh, basic district you're in and which orientation, east, west, and north, south, have different columns of trees. Wow. So that you know, and they're mainly like fruit trees. So you know whether you're going east and west or north and south, depending on what kind of trees are there. Oh, that's a wonderful signal. Yeah. So there's a lot of small little details like that. And then the overall large one, like these super blocks, I think are wonderful. So that is, um, that is Kronzberg. And uh, then the next one is Ponte Verde, Spain which I've talked about already, that is a remarkable place. And there's more places like that happening. It just happens to be one that um, I was not that familiar with. And I started doing the research on it, and I found it just really fascinating. And the fact that it started about the same time Serenby did. Serenby started in 2000, basically, and, and uh, Punta Verde started in 1999. Mm. So uh, it's amazing what can happen in 20 years. I mean, a lot of really... Um, radical, wonderful, radical change can happen. Yeah. And, and I think that it's really interesting because, you know, your books are, um, you know, tend to be more uh, academic, I want to say, but, but this one is, it's very dense, but I think it is, it actually could be like a really wonderful sort of, you know, pseudo coffee table book because the, the, the concepts are so phenomenal. And, and the hope is, is that, you know, we get like, you know, government, you know, city planners or city council or mayors or governors that are sort of 
um, exposed to these ideas that they can transform their cities. Um, but also the, the, the everyday, everyday person like ourselves that, that can sort of, if you will, demand these changes or advocate for these changes, um, in our cities, um, because we do have power, you know? Yeah. On the last question I'd like to ask you is really what is the importance of biophilia in your life and not necessarily in a work perspective, but maybe how it makes you feel your overall health. Uh, great. Uh, and in fact, it's kind of been a lifesaver. I, uh, two years ago, I came down with two forms of cancer mm. and uh, have more or less kicked both of them. Um, one of them was cut out. <laughs> it's long gone. And uh, the other one is just uh, through uh, lifestyle changes. Part of it's because I'm retired, but I work just as hard as I did before. Mm. Uh, but the main reason is stress reduction, um, I think, and uh, the quality of uh, social interaction that I can um, monitor uh, living in Serenby with uh, my tendency to be reclusive. So, um, and then, of course, my interaction uh, with nature, um, I can't, you know, right now I'm looking out, I can see a huge view of trees and my garden. And I think these all have contributed uh, to just a sense of uh, accomplishment of, you know, that my life has led to this point. Mm -hmm. I have this kind of environment to live in, both in terms of being able to live in Serenby and to to live in my house and to to, uh, interact with uh, both the people in nature that's around here. Um, Every day I open up my windows, even on a day like today and let in fresh air. Um, It's found out that uh, um, indoor air pollution is a major cause of colds. Mm -hmm not cold outside. Uh, So, you know, beginning to get a little bit of air changing um, is really great. Um, I love the idea that most of my electricity comes from photovoltaic um, panels on my roof. Hmm. And I have very little pollution here. But I think that, you know, the visual environment, you know, all the patterns are are here. Uh, I've got a a little dog and I have an incredible number of animals uh, they come into my garden from snakes to birds to frogs, you name it. And uh, all these things in, in little ways, I think, contribute uh, uh, to a biophilic experience. And uh, the one on awe, I think, is also there are a lot of times, well, when you get into it really deeply, in a way, that which is sacred chooses you don't. Mm. It's like you walk into the woods, I'm going to have a sacred experience, right? <laughs> Uh, you, you, it's not a human-centered process. In a way, it's a divine-centered process. And so the best that we can do is be open to it. And, uh, and if you're open to it, then you're, you're creating an opportunity for those kinds of experiences to occur. Another thing that's very interesting about awe that's been done by some uh, researchers, uh, um, William James wrote about this, that uh, awe experiences or what he calls numinous experiences are momentary. They last between 10 or 15 minutes to up to an hour or two max. And um, another uh, quality of them is that they do create this kind of transcendent change, almost like a metabolic change Mm -hmm. inside you. So uh, these are important, I think, uh, to have these experiences. Um, 
I can remember when I was younger and I had kids and family and work and problems and issues and credit card debt, you name it. And it's just like, uh, I can remember in my mid to late thirties, what it was all about was trying to find 10 minutes to a half hour a day where I could just be myself and be alone. And, uh, by the time you get to my age now, it's, it's not that it's like 99% of my time is like that. <laughs> um, and, and of course, uh, to me, it's, it's all biophilic. That's great. Well, Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I'm super excited about the new book. You've put so many wonderful ideas into our heads. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a gift to have you, Phil. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be first on this podcast. <laughs> Our pleasure. Okay, well, you guys take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. Okay, so that interview was so great. Where do we even begin? I know. So many things that I could have talked about for hours. I mean, hours and hours. Seriously, thin places, that whole idea blew my mind. Okay, let's wrap it up as best as we can. So what I heard was a biophilic community is a place where people have access to nature and can easily engage with the outdoors. He also talked about planning and development should be prioritizing the natural resources and ecological conditions of each area that you're doing that building and planning in. Right. And there are five outcomes of that kind of planning. Think of it this way. Climate positive, sustainability, placemaking, health and wellness, and the numinous or spiritual component. And there are scales, right? He talked about scales to each of these, um, where they can look very different when you're talking about a town versus a city, right? Exactly. So in a town, you might be talking about nature trails and being able to walk to a few shops to run errands. But in a city, you're dealing with infrastructure and an entirely different beast. So we all need to advocate for more biophilic communities. Yes, exactly. This is going to look different depending on where you are. But find out who your city officials are, your city council, or maybe the planning department. Make sure they are aware of the ideas and how impactful and positive they can be. Educate yourself and your community about the positive outcomes, the economic advantages, and start making that argument. I mean, take a look at the Atlanta Beltline, for example. Or the High Line in New York City. Exactly. Or even Serenby. These places are thriving because people want to be here. Exactly. Once people start to see the benefits, the argument kind of makes themselves. All right, guys. Well, that does it for our first episode. Congratulations, Jennifer. Congratulations, Monica. We did it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And we hope you'll tune into episode two that's going to be with Bill Browning of Terrapin Bright Green. If you want to support, please follow, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating if you don't mind. It really helps, and we really, really appreciate it. 